A note before we begin. Today's case is still open and active. If you have information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. Backpacking has become sort of a rite of passage for young people. A chance for teenagers or 20-somethings to travel on a budget. To explore the world and their place in it. Oftentimes, it's their first trip overseas, or their first experience traveling alone. So letting go can be hard for their parents. Imagine, you're a parent whose child goes on one of these trips and disappears. It's your worst fears realized. They're missing in a foreign country, somewhere you've never been yourself, where everyone is a total stranger. And yet, those strangers are your best hope of finding your child alive. Today's case is about a young backpacker who disappears thousands of miles away from home and the community that comes together to search for him. It's a story about how empathy can transcend borders. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet an 18-year-old backpacker who disappeared from Australia in 2019. Cell phone records and GPS data have provided detailed clues about his last known movements, but there's still more questions than answers. His name is Theo Hayes. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 2018, Theo Hayes lives in a suburb outside Brussels, Belgium. He's 18 years old. He just graduated high school. Theo's lean with sandy blonde hair and gray-blue eyes that squint when he smiles. He enjoys rugby, music, and environmental science. He wants to go to college for engineering and dreams of one day designing a zero-emission car. Theo's close with his family, especially his 15-year-old brother Lucas and his godfather, Jean-Philippe Pector. Jean-Philippe, who goes by JP, lives near Melbourne, Australia with his wife and two kids. Even though they spend most of the time thousands of miles away from each other, JP treats Theo like another son. When Theo decides to take a gap year before starting university, backpacking through Australia seems like a natural choice. He'll visit his godfather before setting out on his own travels. Come fall, Theo's preparing for his trip. It's a big deal. This will be his first time leaving the EU. Theo talks with JP to work out the details down to the last letter. He may be a teenager, but Theo's type A. He's organized and plans out nearly every day of his seven-month journey. And as the trip gets closer, he gets more and more excited, as well as nervous. So does his little brother, Lucas. 
Before Theo leaves, Lucas asks to keep one of Theo's sweaters, something to remember him by. Theo agrees. He gives his brother a hug and reminds him that he isn't leaving forever. Theo arrives in Melbourne on November 12th, 2018. He spends a month living with JP and his family getting acclimated. Then he meets up with his cousin, Lisa Hayes. Lisa's two years older than Theo and also from Belgium. She's been in Australia for a few months doing some traveling of her own, so she shows Theo the ropes. They make a trip to Sydney and by winter, they're roommates sharing an apartment in Melbourne. In Melbourne, Theo finds work at the Australian Open and a local farm. But by spring, he meets other backpackers and travels to Tasmania, the Great Barrier Reef, and Australia's eastern coast. He spends his days sailing and surfing. It is a dream vacation. In an interview for the podcast, The Lighthouse, which also covers Theo's case, Lisa described her cousin's carefree lifestyle, saying everything was fine. We were just living our life, a backpacker's life. Six months into Theo's trip, on Saturday, May 25th, 2019, he and Lisa meet up with Lisa's stepbrother, Michael Dorkum, in Brisbane. The three cousins catch up over tacos. Theo's in high spirits, but his trip is winding down. His flight back to Belgium is scheduled for June 13th, just over two weeks away. After so much time abroad, he tells Michael and Lisa he's ready to go home. He's anxious to start his next chapter. He has to take an engineering exam before starting college in the fall, and he needs to study. He also misses his family and friends. At some point, he messages his mom, Vessian, and asks if they can throw a party to celebrate his return to Belgium. He also asks his dad, Laurent, if he can work at the family landscaping business for the summer to make some cash. Like usual, Theo's thinking ahead, planning everything out but there's one item on his itinerary that no one else knows about. The next day, May 26th, Lisa watches Theo board a bus to the Gold Coast. This isn't a surprise, she knows about the trip. But three days into his travel, Theo makes a rare spontaneous decision. He takes another bus to Byron Bay. Byron Bay is a small beach town that was once known as a mecca for surfers and hippies. But by the time Theo arrives in 2019, money's changed the area. It's now home to billionaires and celebrities like Chris Hemsworth and Matt Damon, and its stunning beaches draw hordes of tourists. Theo arrives on Wednesday, May 29th and checks into a local hostel. It's unclear exactly how he spends the next two days. Nothing seems that out of the ordinary that we know of at least but I wanna slow down and walk you through everything we know about Theo's movements on the evening of day three, May 31st, the night he disappears. A timeline has been stitched together using security footage, cell phone data, and witness statements. By the afternoon, Theo has messaged his mom and met up with another backpacker staying at the hostel, Antoine. Antoine's around Theo's age and also from Brussels, so the two have become fast friends. That evening, they head into town and pick up some wine for a barbecue at their hostel. CCTV footage shows the young men walking through the liquor store. Theo's wearing tan pants, a black hoodie, and his favorite hat, a gray Puma baseball cap. They pick up a bottle of rosé, Antoine pays, and they catch an Uber back to their hostel around 7.45 p.m. After the barbecue ends, Theo, Antoine, and a handful of other backpackers take a shuttle from their hostel into town. They arrive at a bar called Cheeky Monkeys at 9.35 p.m. 
It's a popular party spot for backpackers, a dark venue with colorful disco lights, loud music, and cheap drinks. As one Yelp review puts it, Cheeky Monkeys is, quote, a hot mess in the very best sense of the word. Security lets Theo and his group inside. Theo buys Antoine a beer to pay him back for the bottle of rosé, but they don't see each other much after that. CCTV footage shows Theo sitting in a booth with a small group of people, including Alexander Stadegard, aka Sander, another backpacker staying at the hostel. According to Sander, he and Theo have a short conversation about politics. Sometime after, Theo gets up to dance on a table with some people. It's apparently a tradition at Cheeky Monkeys. Sometime after that, Theo orders a beer and heads to the bathroom. And this is where the night takes a turn. When Theo exits the bathroom, there's a security guard waiting for him. Theo's told to follow him outside. He's being kicked out of the bar. Cheeky Monkey's security team will later say they threw Theo out because he was, quote, approaching intoxication. Ejecting drunk patrons is a common practice in the area. New South Wales, the area where Byron Bay is located, has strict laws around alcohol service and consumption. So on the surface, this isn't unusual. It's the security guard's job. But what is strange is neither Antoine nor Sander recall Theo being drunk at any point. He only purchased two drinks at the bar, one for Antoine and one for himself. Even if he was drinking at the barbecue, one more beer shouldn't have affected his sobriety in any significant way. This is important. Whether or not Theo was intoxicated affects how we should examine what happens next. And by most accounts, he wasn't. The bar later admits they might've made a mistake, but they don't explain how or why. In court testimony, members of the security team deny implications that they might have kicked male patrons out of the bar to make room for more women. Whatever the case, that night, Theo leaves without objection. It happens so fast that none of his friends even know he's left. He's separated from the group, kicked to the street. A CCTV camera around the corner records him striding quickly across the pavement with his head down and eyes on his phone. He walks out of frame and into the night. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. On Monday, June 3rd, 2019, three days after Theo Hayes is kicked out of a bar in Byron Bay, Bassian Delforge wakes up concerned about her son. She hasn't heard from Theo since that Friday, and they normally message each other almost every day. At first, she rationalizes the silence. Theo's traveling, and he may not have cell phone reception or Wi-Fi, but when she hasn't heard anything by Thursday, June 6th, she messages Theo's cousin Lisa, the one he's been traveling with. She hasn't heard from him either. 
Lisa calls Theo's Australian phone number over and over, but he never picks up. Theo's godfather, JP, also tries and can't get a hold of him either. Nobody can. What's worse, no one knows what city he's in. Remember, Theo didn't tell anyone about his trip to Byron Bay. But JP has an idea. He and Theo use the same bank, so he drives to a local branch and convinces a representative to pull up Theo's recent transactions. That's when Theo's family learns that he was staying in a hostel in Byron Bay. His last purchase was made there. Lisa calls the hostel and learns that Theo was supposed to check out three days earlier on Monday, June 3rd, but he never did. And he left behind a bunch of his belongings in his room. Now, it's relatively common for guests to forget luggage or leave behind items that they can't or don't want to take with them. So the hostel staff didn't think much of it at the time. But just before Lisa called, someone had actually found Theo's passport. This obviously raised a red flag. The hostel just alerted the police. Authorities had now put out a missing person notice in Byron Bay and the surrounding areas. But it's been almost a full week since Theo was last seen. For his family, this is devastating news. Not wanting to waste another second, they contact the Belgian embassy in Australia. Lisa and her stepfather, Michael, post about Theo on Facebook. They ask for help from others in the backpacking community. Their actions put them ahead of police, who do not issue a request for public assistance for another 24 hours. This becomes a trend in Theo's investigation. Theo's family is always one step ahead of authorities, and they're the first to go out and actually look for him. On the morning of Saturday, June 8th, Lisa and Michael put out a call for volunteers on Facebook. The plan is to meet at 9 a.m. near Cheeky Monkeys, the bar where Theo was last seen. They don't expect many people to show up, if any, so they're amazed when they amass a small search party of about 10 people. Later, JP arrives from Melbourne and joins them. Together, they scour the town and nearby wilderness. The police begin their official search the next day, and the authorities know something the others don't. Theo's last known location. It's not the streets outside the bar. It's the beach. According to phone records, Theo's cell connected to a tower near the coast, so that's where officials start. They deploy helicopters, jet skis, and rescue boats to search the water. Crews with trained search dogs canvass the beach and surrounding bushland. Eventually, the unofficial search party joins them, adding more manpower to the operation. It's an incredible undertaking, but in the end, they don't find any signs of Theo. Before long, Theo's been missing for almost two weeks. Theo's parents, Vassion and Laurent, arrive from Belgium to help look for their son. On June 17th, Laurent speaks in a press conference. He appeals to the community for help. Overcome with emotion, he says, when I left Belgium, I promised Theo's little brother, Lucas, that I would bring his brother home. Please help me keep my promise to him. Laurent's pleas are broadcast across Australia. The story grips the nation. A teenager missing thousands of miles from home, his parents thrust into a search forced to navigate the laws, bureaucracy, and language of a foreign country. Parents watching see themselves in Laurent and Bassion. They think, what if it was my child? And the answer to that question ignites a movement to find Theo. After the press conference, the search party grows exponentially. Many volunteers are Byron Bay locals who don't know Theo or his family, but drop everything to help. 
They organize social media campaigns, lead daily searches, and distribute flyers. They even provide free food and accommodations for Theo's family. But while the amount of work volunteers put in is immeasurable, the first break in the investigation doesn't come from the groundswell of strangers or the police. It comes from the persistence of Theo's family. Prior to the June 17th press conference, they asked police to tap into Theo's phone. They knew his GPS data, text messages, and emails could help fill in the gaps of the timeline or offer new clues. But bureaucratic red tape slowed down the process of authorities getting that information. So growing impatient, Theo's family got a hold of it themselves. Vassion knew a few of her son's old passwords, so she kept trying different variations until she gained access to his email. From there, they were able to gain access to his Facebook. Both were huge steps, but what they really wanted was Theo's Google location data. So Vassion enlisted the help of Theo's cousin, Michael, who happened to work in IT. He somehow used Theo's various accounts to reset his Google password. Then, they were in. What could have been a months-long process for police took them just 10 days, and what they found became the centerpiece of the investigation, a complete record of Theo's movements that night, down to the minute. Michael passes his findings to the police, and investigators get straight to work. They hone in on the hours after security kicked Theo out of the bar, and they're baffled by what they find. As soon as Theo left Cheeky Monkeys, he searched for directions to his hostel, then went the opposite direction. Instead of heading further into town, he walked toward a more residential area near the bushland. He stopped by some cricket nets at a local recreation area, stayed there for seven minutes, then continued on into the bush. He started on a trail at first, but there were no streetlights. It would have been pitch black without a phone flashlight. Eventually, he walked off the trail and into the wilderness. He wandered through dense foliage and later emerged on a beach. From there, Theo walked along the sand toward Cape Byron Lighthouse, a local landmark. But he didn't reach the lighthouse. Before he could get there, he hit a dead end, a cliffside at the edge of the beach known as Cozy Corner. The spot was popular for beach parties and illegal bonfires, but that night it appeared to be empty. Around midnight, Theo turned his phone's location services off, which may sound suspicious, but in all likelihood, Theo was just trying to save battery because his next actions don't indicate he was in danger. At 12.20 a.m., he sent a message to a friend in Belgium. He wanted to chat about U2, the band. Three minutes later, he watched a few minutes of a French comedy show. 20 minutes after that, he sent two more messages. One to a backpacker he met earlier in his trip about meeting up soon before he left Australia to return to Belgium, and another to his stepsister in Belgium. He sent her a kiss emoji and one word, merci, thank you. I don't know the context of their conversation, but it's the last time anyone hears from him. The data from Google breathes new life into Theo's case. Soon, Belgian police arrive in Australia, as well as detectives from Sydney homicide detectives. The updated timeline suggests a new possibility. Theo wasn't alone the night he disappeared. This could explain his seven-minute pause at the cricket nets. It's possible he stopped and asked for directions. He likely wouldn't have known about the unmarked shortcut to Cozy Corner. But for Theo's family, the evidence suggests that he did more than ask for directions. 
they don't believe he would have taken such a treacherous path at night by himself. But they do think it's possible he followed someone through the bushland and up to the cliff. Authorities send more rescue dogs to try and track his scent. Drones scan the cliff sides. Divers explore the surrounding water. For two weeks, police and volunteers retrace Theo's steps from Cheeky Monkeys to Cozy Corner. But 16 days after data from Google renews hope in the investigation, authorities haven't found any new leads. And on Wednesday, July 3rd, police call off the search altogether. It's gut-wrenching news. The official search lasted less than a month. Police assure Theo's family that their investigation will continue. There just won't be any more rescue teams, helicopters, or drones. But as you can imagine, that's not much consolation for Theo's loved ones. On the night he disappeared, Theo trekked across miles of bushland and passed through a national park. There's still so much ground and water to cover. If the police won't comb through it, Theo's family and the Byron Bay community will. The unofficial search continues. And soon, volunteers discover the first real trace of Theo. On July 7th, 2019, four days after police stop searching for Theo Hayes, volunteers find the first piece of physical evidence in the case, Theo's hat. The gray puma ball cap is found in the bushland, close to the beach, on the exact path Theo took. And the worn brim matches the condition of the one Theo was last seen wearing. It's a big moment. The only tangible trace of Theo in a month and proof that despite the end of the official search, the continued efforts of volunteers and loved ones is paying off. They're once again, one step ahead. You'd think the discovery of Theo's hat would be a welcome development for officials, but even after investigators received the cap, they don't conduct a new search where it was found. And two months later, on September 16th, the people working tirelessly to find Theo are hit with another shock. Up until this point, detectives have been taking calls from the public, collecting new tips and potential leads. But now, police announce it's not just the official search that's over. They're ending the investigation as well. They refer the case to a coroner, meaning they assume Theo's dead. Now, let's imagine for a moment another timeline, Bassion and Laurent's timeline. On June 6, your child was reported missing on the other side of the world. You flew thousands of miles to look for him, dove headfirst into a waking nightmare, searched tirelessly day and night, only for police to give up after a month. You continued because you had to. With incredible sacrifice, you stayed and made a small break in the case, the kind you prayed for for weeks something that could get law enforcement involved again, but it doesn't make a difference. And four months after your son goes missing, investigators close his case because they assume they won't find him alive. It's difficult to imagine, but Theo's family keeps persisting. They can't shake the feeling that someone knows what happened to him. After a year, Theo's family takes their son's story to the TV show 60 Minutes Australia. While producing an episode on Theo's disappearance, reporters conduct their own investigation and find two critical pieces of evidence. 
first, at 12.57 a.m., just a few minutes before Theo's phone went inactive, it made contact with another mobile device, what experts call a Wi-Fi handshake. A handshake only happens within a certain range and commonly involves the exchange of a Wi-Fi or hotspot password. This suggests Theo might have intentionally connected his phone to someone else's. Second, the next morning, just hours after Theo dropped off the map, his phone moved. It went over land, through some rough terrain, and past the lighthouse. It stayed there until it made its last connecting signal around 1 p.m. Two months later, in November 2021, this new evidence is used at the coroner's inquest into Theo's disappearance. At the inquest, the Byron Bay Police Department presents their theory. They believe Theo was alone that night and died in a tragic case of misadventure. He wandered through the bushland because he was lost or intoxicated. Once he reached Cozy Corner, he attempted to climb the cliff up to the lighthouse. There's a trail that goes all the way up, but according to officials, it's deceptively easy. Once he reached the other side, police believe Theo saw how rocky and steep the cliff actually was. He could have dropped his phone, lost his footing while trying to retrieve it, and fallen into the water below. If true, this would explain why Theo has never been found. The surf at Byron Bay can be treacherous. Theo wasn't the first person to go missing near Cozy Corner. Someone disappeared there in 1989, another in 2014. In both cases, the bodies were never found. But the police's theory leaves many questions unanswered. Like, how did he know to take the shortcut through the bushland? Theo never searched for directions to the beach. And even if he did, that shortcut wouldn't have shown up on any map. The trail was unmarked and it was the middle of the night. But moreover, if Theo was alone, how do we explain the Wi-Fi handshake? Whose phone did he connect to? And if his phone really fell into the ocean, why did it travel and continue to transmit signals until 1 p.m. the following afternoon? For days, friends and family pushed back on the police's theories. They explained that Theo didn't enjoy feeling out of control. He rarely, if ever, drank in excess. And their statements are supported by eyewitness accounts. As I already mentioned, the backpackers who were with Theo that night said he didn't seem drunk at all. Despite all of this, after 13 days of hearings, the inquest rules out foul play. As of this recording, the coroner's official findings are still being drafted. They'll be published on October 21st, 2022. I don't know what happened to Theo Hayes. Just like his path to the beach that night, every route seems to hit a dead end but I can't help but feel like there's one path that hasn't been fully considered, at least not that I'm aware of. Maybe there's room for everyone to be right. Maybe Theo did slip on the rocks and fall into the water, and someone else was with him when it happened. Witnessing someone fall to their death would of course be traumatizing. If someone saw it happen, they might feel responsible they might be too afraid to come forward. To this day, Theo's family believes he wasn't alone when he disappeared, that someone, somewhere, knows something. In a statement made this year, Theo's family spoke about how devastated they are that another year has passed without answers. 
They explained, quote, Every day Theo is missing is as difficult as the last, as we navigate our endless and ambiguous grief and continue to seek answers to what happened to our boy. Theo's case has faced some unique challenges. Long flights, language barriers, bureaucratic roadblocks, tracking down a person who's been traveling for a long period of time with no consistent schedule, and often cross paths with strangers. For many people, the purpose of backpacking is to get away. So if a backpacker disappears, it's hard to find a reliable witness. Oftentimes, no one's paying attention to where they are and when. This is one of the biggest setbacks in Theo's case. The reason no one realized he was missing until almost a week later. Luckily, we live in the age of information. A person's location, messages, and search history, almost everything about them are stored in their phone. And Theo's held a ton of clues. But even that wasn't enough to find out what happened to him. And getting that information wasn't easy. International tech giants like Facebook and Google have strict policies about disclosing user data. In Australia, authorities have almost no recourse to get them to cooperate. It's a major barrier in missing persons investigations, and all the more frustrating considering how easily these companies sell that same data to advertisers. As police go back and forth with tech companies, days pass where that information could have solved a case or saved a life. But even with all these factors working against finding Theo, there was and is something invaluable working in his favor. Community. When Theo went missing, his relatives were the first ones on the ground. While Byron Bay police were tied up in red tape, Theo's family hacked his Google account. And when authorities gave up the search, it was the people of Byron Bay who kept looking. And they still are. Every year on the anniversary of Theo's disappearance, supporters gather for a vigil in his honor. They decorate the beach with flowers and candles. Intricate designs are traced into the sand. Hundreds of people attend. Their presence is a reminder that grief transcends language and empathy is far more important than nationality. Theo's parents thank all of them. They say that it's quote, the generosity of strangers that's helped them endure. A $500,000 reward has been offered by the New South Wales government for any information about Theo Hayes' disappearance. If you know something, please contact Crime Stoppers Australia at www.crimestopper.com.au. For specifics on Theo's case and what you can do to help, please visit lookingfortheo.com. Once again, that's looking, the number four, theo.com. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Among the many sources we used for this episode, we found the Australian's investigative podcast, The Lighthouse, incredibly helpful. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. 
You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Alex Garland, edited by Karis Allen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.